this going to turn into The Shining? Maybe. Probably. I've seen some good Shining um, memes about the pandemic and being locked in your house with your family. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. Everyone across the world is sharpening their axes right now. Hmm. Hmm. Well, welcome <laughs> to a very special episode of I Love This, You Should Too. Aren't they all very special? Though? I'm going to start saying that about each episode. Yeah. <laughs> my name is Indy Randawa, and with me is my lovely wine-drinking co-host, Samantha Hees. That's me. How's your wine? Um, It's very good. Um, It's uh, a white wine. And it's very tasty. Hmm. Fascinating. <laughs> yes. Well, you asked. <laughs> <laughs> so normally we don't really talk much about when we're recording these because we record early sometimes. Sometimes it's like a couple days before. Sometimes it's like a month before. And we want them to be kind of timeless. But I feel like because of what's going on right now, we'll probably talk about it a little bit. I feel like we need to talk about it. Because we are recording this probably three weeks earlier than it comes out. We're in late March it's right now. It's March 19th today. And uh, we are both under quarantine. Yes. I got quite ill a couple of days ago and I... Lovingly passed that all along <laughs> yes. to Samantha. And I was also waiting for test results from someone that I traveled with recently. So we're both kind of doing the right thing and locking ourselves into the house and trying to just not spread our germs to anybody. So hopefully when this actually comes out, we'll look on and be like, oh, what a silly time that was. Now everyone is fine and the world is back to normal. Oh, God, I hope That's so. my hope. And I think we're probably going to record extra episodes because we have the time We have now. the time. It's been good. We've not gotten on each other's nerves. For... This is day three. Four. Four. Day four. We got a lot more time. Oh, I know. <laughs> But we tomorrow's Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, so this is what we are doing now, <laughs> is to stop ourselves from going crazy. Which I think this is a good tip in case people are still under quarantine when this comes out. We are doing holidays. So Every we're going to do Thanksgiving. So I'm going to cook a little Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. The next day we're going to do Halloween. Yeah. We're going to dress up, watch some spooky movies. Yeah. We have a... Spa day planned. Oh, spa day. Spa Sunday. Yeah. I think we should do a vacation day. Where we only listen to like island music and drink. That'll be the day where I'll drink. And we'll have um, rum and such. Sure. And then Monday is Christmas. Oh, yeah. We're going to do Christmas. We're going to pretend it's Christmas for a whole day. Tuesday is New Year's. Oh, I didn't know about that one. Yeah. Tuesday, you have to check your that. Google invites. Sorry. Um, th Wednesday is Valentine's Day. And Tuesday, or sorry, and Thursday is St. Patrick's Day. So we're just going to drink all day. All right. Well, <laughs> I guess I, I have uh, no input. I guess I have to drink. I guess Friday is vacation day. Sure. Okay. Scheduling it now. Island vacation day. Okay. I guess we could have like ski slope vacation day too. We could have country themed days. Like we could just have French day. We only speak French, eat and drink French things and watch French movies. Keep it. I don't speak French. You do pre better than you think you do. You understand when I speak to you. I do. I do. I took a lot of French in like my younger years, and I think more of it has stuck with me than I thought. And yeah, like I said, we're going to be recording more, so maybe our next few episodes are going to be us being very weird. Speaking of very weird, did you like that little little segue? Yes, I did. Speaking of very weird, oh. we are talking about 
the 1999 film Being John Malkovich. Oh, really? It was my pick, and Samantha watched it for the first time. I rewatched it for maybe only my third time, but I haven't seen it in more than 10 years. And, well, are we ready to get into it? Yes. Being John Malkovich. Here we go. Did you love it? I liked it, I think. That's a very less convincing liked it even you should have seen her face it looked like she was in a lot of pain (laughs) um i just don't know that this movie was my style i enjoyed the premise of it i enjoyed kind of the idea of it but i didn't really enjoy the execution um yeah i'll i'll reserve some of my more in-depth things for later when we talk about it but i i don't think i can say that i really liked this movie so indie Did you love this movie? I think of my picks, it might be the lowest in my level of love. Interesting. But I think it's a great movie still. Okay. I think everything I've picked, I've given either a 9 or 10 out of 10. And this one's probably like an 8. I think it's very good. I don't think it's good as Totoro or The Shining. But it's... True. It's very good. And although while we were watching it, I was wondering like, oh, maybe this isn't as good as I think it is. The more I thought about it over the last few days, because even though we're quarantined, we've actually been putting off this podcast for quite a while. We have, yeah. The more I thought about it, the more I think like, oh, you know what? Yeah, this is is pretty great. (laughs) Um, So I have to say that watching it a second time really kind of helped my opinion of this movie. So the first time that we watched it, we had to run out of the house really quickly because a friend of ours had kind of a medical emergency and we had to go help. Um, so we ended up watching it from start to finish just a second time. Um, we didn't finish it the first time. So getting to see the beginning again really um, kind of reinforced that I did actually like this movie. Um, and then I did enjoy parts of it. Uh, I think that I noticed more things the second time around once I'd already kind of relaxed into like the themes and the like the story and everything. I feel like by seeing it a second time, I saw some of the smaller things that I might have missed the first time around. Yeah, I think a movie like this, this movie specifically, definitely benefits from we rewatching. Most of us haven't seen a movie like this. And no. it's not in a way that's saying like, oh, you've never seen something like this. But really, it's quite different and quite bizarre in a lot of ways. And it takes some time to get used to it. Yeah, I definitely say that's a that's a fact. Well, let's let's start at the beginning here. Yes. 1999. The number. Another summer. How did that song go? We've heard it so many times for Do the Right Thing. But anyways, 1999, (laughs) I'd argue, and most people would agree, that was probably the single best year for modern American cinema. Really? Of course, I always go on about the 70s, but in my lifetime, I think there is no better year than 1999. The Matrix was probably one of the most influential movies of that year. Oh, The Matrix, yeah. And that really did change movies Mm -hmm. for a long time, because now we look at so many things and it's just become like, oh yeah, that's how action scenes look now. But that wasn't the case before The Matrix. Uh, The biggest movie of the year financially, I believe, was Phantom Menace, which we talked about not too long ago. Not the most influential movie, perhaps, but um, let me just spit out a few other movies. You can tell me if you've seen them, didn't see them, or liked them. I saw Phantom Menace and The Matrix. I love Keanu Reeves. That's true. (laughs) Um, Other movies from 99, Toy Story 2, 
Yeah, I probably saw that. Often regarded as the best of the lot. American Beauty won Best Picture. Have not seen that. Blair Witch Project. Nope. Boys Don't Cry. Nope. Office Space. Nope. Three Kings. Nope. Magnolia. Nope. Eyes Wide Shut. Nope. Iron Giant. Nope. Talented Mr. Ripley. Nope. The Hurricane. (laughs) Nope. Virgin Suicides. Nope. Cider House Rules. Nope. Election. Yes. Okay. All right. (laughs) But those, that is a stacked lineup of great movies. So not even, like, I haven't seen most of those movies, but I know of them. That's the thing. It's like, I know that these are movies that have, like, relevant significance in, like, the movie kind of sphere. And I know that they are important movies in that time. And they're different from a lot of other years because there's some years with a lot of like really famous movies. And I think you could say that about Matrix, Phantom Menace, Toy Story, maybe even American Beauty. But what's special about these ones is they're all kind of a little bit weird. A lot of these movies aren't your big mainstream movies. Like if you talk about the best movies or the most popular movies from the 2010s it's going to be a lot of movies that had over 100 million dollar budgets and then grossed over 300 million yeah that was not the case for most of these movies they're much smaller they're they're strange movies in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways like something like magnolia does well that year american beauty wins the best picture which i think it ages not as well as so many of those other ones and not just thematically and because of things about kevin spacey that we know now yes but (laughs) hindsight (laughs) it won best picture if it came out now it would be deemed like a weird little indie movie that doesn't get a sniff at the oscars but 99 was different and all of these really unique movies even ones with like big super superstars like Talented Mr. Ripley, I think is a fantastic movie, but they're small and they're understated. And I think this is a lot to do with uh, DVD sales. Yeah. Because now it's we're pretty much back to a box office only system. Yes. People aren't buying physical media. And we're between VHS and DVD. This was in this is the height of the DVD. Okay, yeah. Matrix was at the time the best-selling DVD of all time. True. I think uh, Sixth Sense was also 99. Oh. Another big blockbuster. And that wouldn't be a blockbuster today. It's a pretty quiet and small movie, right? It's not like the horror movies you get today. But because of DVDs, people could target movies at more passionate fans rather than a, like, broad spectrum of fans. You don't want just, like, everyone to see it. It's not just appealing to the most people you can. It's trying to cash in on fans who are going to go see it maybe see it a second or a third time and then buy the dvd so you're appealing to more niche audiences i think Mm -hmm. and i was definitely in that category i was in like high school or whatever got my first dvd player and i was going out and using my hard-earned lumber loading job money lumber dollars yeah all those lumber bucks and (laughs) buying dvds yeah because when i went and uh picked up my copy of being john malkovich for us to watch the receipt from hmv was still in it i bought a league of their own and being john malkovich wow that's awesome so yeah and i think now we might see a resurgence of, of that because of streaming services 
bringing things back but i think that applies more to television than it does to film Mm -hmm. you get some weirder tv shows but movies seem to be the bigger stuff at least it's it's fairly mainstream mainstream. yeah and 99 was a was a great year for that and one of the weird ones being john malkovich correct (laughs) and i think the weirdness of malkovich of course starts with the script of charlie kaufman oh well, we talked about him a bit on the last episode, but yes, we did. It's a, it's a bizarre premise, yeah. And that yeah, that starts with him. And I think this is weird because it's a it's a writer's movie. Mm-hmm. You don't see too many of those. You see like a director's movie. The Shining is a Kubrick movie. If you watch a um, like a Jim Carrey movie or a Tom Cruise, those are the stars' movies, really, right? You don't really know the writers or the directors of their movies as much. Uh, but this one, I think, is definitely a, a Charlie Kaufman movie. Mm. So he wrote this as a script trying to get a job. He wasn't trying to sell it. He's like, this will never be made, but I'm going to write something outrageous, exactly what I want, and I'm going to use it to like get meetings. This because... is like an entrance essay to college. Absolutely. He was only doing sitcom work before that. But yeah, he, he said he got 15 meetings to make other movies based on the script. Because people would go like, that's amazing. Of course, we're never going to make it. But let's talk. So he started to get more work like that. But eventually he got to Spike Jones, who was at the time Francis Ford Coppola's uh, son-in-law. Right. And... Coppola didn't want anything to do with it, but he's like, hey, Spike, you're a weird guy. Maybe take a look at this. And they actually got it made, which was crazy. And they, Malkovich himself said, like, I'll help you get it made, but I'm not being in it. I'll, like, produce even. And Kaufman was just straight up, no, like, it's about you. You have to be in it. And right. he actually turned down the opportunity to get it made because it had to be John Malkovich. Right. And then eventually it happened. That's awesome. Yeah. That's cool when you kind of stand by that, that like, need for something specific in your movie to make it your movie. And they, like, I feel like a lot of people in Hollywood, and I don't know this because I'm not, like, I've never made a movie or dealt with people in Hollywood, but I feel like a lot of things in Hollywood, you have to be kind of flexible with changing in order to get your thing made. And uh, it's cool to see someone kind of stand up for what they want. Yeah, it's definitely the case because the first feature that I ever made, they changed a lot of it. And I wasn't ready for that because I was just like a young, young kid. But one thing I put in my contract is that the ending still had to be sad. And they kept a sad ending. And they did not want to, but it was in the contract. It was a sad ending. You've never seen it. What? My feature. Oh, your feature. I thought you were talking about being John Malkovich. Oh, yes. That was a sad ending. That was a sad ending. I was was thinking about the ending of this. Uh, And then also Kaufman has protagonists that aren't heroes. And you see that throughout his movies, too. They're they're not heroic. They're not lovable. And they're not villains, either. I might argue that a little bit, because... Well, we can get into characters later. I feel later, like but... they're very middle-of-the-road villains. They're not, right. like... They're not super villains. They're not, like, the Marvel villains of villains. No, they're, they're not mustache-twirling villains. No. They're just kind of bad people. They're just bad people. Yeah. And they don't even, like... They're, they're bad people with, like, the possibility of changing. I'm sure at some point you could change them to be good. But they're they're just bad people. Yeah. And they're, yeah, not lovable, 
but they're at least identifiable mm-hmm. in a way. You could see something in yourself. Yeah. Of course, they're much more exaggerated and uh, and crazy in a lot of ways, <laughs> but you can maybe relate to little pieces of everyone in it. Yeah. It's like Marvel villains are just like bad, bad, mm-hmm. and you can't relate to them. You're never going to change them from being bad. That's not even a plot point. You just, they're just bad. Except for like in Black Panther, which is why that one was successful. Exactly. Uh, sad thing about Charlie Kaufman, at the time, he went on a string to make such great movies, and he got to do what he wanted and made, like, Eternal Sunshine, uh, Adaptation and such, and they were great, and he became known, and writers very rarely do. Very rarely do. Did I say that properly? That's no, about you right. didn't. Okay, I got it the second time. Yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah. But now, he can't get scripts made. Why? People are just like, no, we don't do that kind of thing anymore. Oh, he's out of fashion. Risk is out of fashion. Hmm. Why would you make a $15 million movie that does make $30 million? This was a very profitable movie. It made twice its money. But why would you make one of those when you could make a $200 million movie that's going to make $800 million? Yeah. That's the way things are now. And it's so sad. I read this interview with him where he's just saying like, I'm just trying to get work. I'm just trying to like stay afloat. That's so and sad. this is someone who I and many people at the time thought was one of the greatest writers working. Now he's not really getting much done. He has some Netflix series coming out, but it's all uh, adapted stuff. People hire him to adapt um, books into movies. Oh, but he's not getting a chance to make his own stuff. Which That's is, sad. It really is. What did you think about how this movie looks? Um. I found it very, I feel like it looked very, um, like they were trying to make it look like real life. Like, I know a lot of movies that we've watched don't really look like real life. They look like kind of an imaginary world. Um, this very much looked like real life and like a, like their apartment looked very much like an apartment that you could walk into in our building. And it, it seemed, oh, I hope not. I hope no one. I, ugh, I hope no one lives has in squalor like that. Yeah, um, but it, it it seemed very much like like a real life. It's place. naturalistic. Yeah, yes. naturalistic. There you go. That's yeah. the word I was looking for. Yeah, absolutely. We watch so many, especially the ones I choose, tend to be very stylized, mm-hmm. and I love to like look at how beautiful they are. There is none of that in this. And that was one thing I was shocked upon rewatching because Spike Jones tended to get more stylized after this. And he's someone that's coming from music videos and he made really kind of innovative and artistically beautiful music videos for him to go from that to get this crazy script and then just make it as naturalistic and kind of like grimy and dirty looking as possible was was a strange choice. Grimy and dirty is a very good way to put it. Um, I think that it it definitely was like gritty looking and um, there was no like glamour to it. Yeah, it looks more like a cop drama Mm -hmm. than this weird, absurdist comedy, if you can call it a comedy. Yeah. I wonder if that's, uh, of course, it's a conscious choice on his part, but I wonder if it's because the script is so crazy that he's kind of like stepping back and saying like, I'm just going to put it up on screen. This is more of a Kaufman movie mm-hmm. than it is a Spike Jones movie. Right. And you decide. Yeah. So it's it's the insanity of what's happening. He doesn't need to underscore that by making the visuals match. Right. Or maybe that's the only way 
an audience could kind of palette such a, a, a bizarre premise is that if it looks like reality yeah. and to keep it away from that whole sci-fi type of look or realm. Because it is a very sci-fi seeming movie. Like if you had framed this in a sci-fi way, I think it would have been like you're right. It's very hard to digest in that way. But because it's something that looks exactly like it could be happening in the office building next to yours, it's very kind of easy to get past that point of like how absurd and crazy the things that are going on are and it's easy to kind of move on into the next thing yeah and i think the actors are that way too because when something bizarre happens to them they're taken aback for a moment and then they just kind of roll with it because i guess this is my life now and they just keep going with things and that kind of helps the audience kind of roll with things too, which is nice. Yeah, maybe not having such an aggressive style visually, it leaves more room for all these philosophical ideas that are going to come through later. Mm-hmm. And some really good performances too. Exactly, yes. Well, are we going to get into all of that philosophical type stuff? Sure, you lead the way. All right, yeah, we've been locked up for a while. Uh, this movie's pretty bizarre. I feel like we're getting a little squirrely, so... I feel the... like my brain doesn't work anymore. No. So let's, yeah, let's get weird. That's what this movie's about. <laughs> Excellent. Let's Maybe we won't even talk about the movie again. We'll just start going on until this stuff. So all of you out there, if you are uh, if you love wine, get a big glass. What's a good wine for being philosophical? Uh, I think a good Pinot Grigio or a good Sauvignon Blanc. There you go. Have one of those. If you, uh, if you like your weed, roll up a nice big, a big alligator hoof. An alligator leg joint. Spark that to your dome. We're going to get into some stuff now. Okay, I'm ready. What's this movie about? Being John Malkovich. Fuck, yeah, whoa. (laughs) I feel like you're just joking, but yeah. I was joking. Yeah, man, it is. Oh my goodness, okay. It is, it's, it's about... It's about identity. It's about the fluidity of identity. It's about the dissolution of it, perhaps. Yeah. So I'm going to throw out stuff because that I just think is common. So your job is to be the audience, to say like, hey, Andy, people don't know what that means. Explain yourself. I will be the audience. I feel like I'm this all the time (laughs) in our house, even when we're not podcasting. (laughs) That might be true. Um, so let's let's go postmodern first of all. Okay. So postmodernism it was a movement relatively late. Um, it's like Derrida and Leotard and those kind of guys. Nobody knows who they are. They're postmodern philosophers. That's Excellent. all we need to know okay, at this well, point. Okay, well that's exactly what I needed. Um, their ideas of identity, I think, come through in this a lot because a lot of the modern thinking of it, it's it's more fluid, right? Your identity is interchangeable and i think this movie even suggests that you can kind of lose what the self is Mm -hmm. so we get a lot of that early in the movie um the secretary says his name wrong people not being attached to names because they're you know you're whatever okay you're just you man (laughs) (laughs) uh craig played by john cusack yes he always talks about wanting to be in someone else's skin True. He wants to be someone else. Uh, Lottie, who is Cameron Diaz. Yes. She never really knew who she was until she becomes John Malkovich for that one moment. Yeah. And with her, it's tied up into a lot of um, like sexual identity yeah. and gender identity. 
And I think she kind of conflates the two together, but maybe someone who has actually gone through that would could speak to that better. But it seems like she goes from I want to be with a woman to I am a man. Yes. And I don't know if maybe that's just because it, everything hits her so fast, but or if... And how, like, alien this whole experience is for her. Yeah. Also, a movie in 99 kind of just having someone say, like, you know what, I, I think... I, I want to become know. a man. And it not being played for a joke or anything no. like that. That's just, that's her awakening. Yeah. And that was, that was interesting to see. Did you notice all the mirrors? Like very early on in the movie, we we open up with a puppet doing a dance. Yeah, it's called the um, the dance of despair and disillusionment. Yes, <laughs> of course it is. And uh, there is a puppet who is meant to be Craig, right? Because yes. it looks like him, yeah. and that's another reflection of himself. He's trying to put himself into the puppet. So when I first watched the movie, I was so distracted by the fact that I was watching a puppet dance. Mm -hmm. I didn't really notice a lot of the stuff that was happening, like kind of in the background of that scene. Mm -hmm. But the second time that we watched it, I found I saw a lot more stuff in that scene. And I was really happy we'd watched it twice because I really kind of felt like I saw more of that scene than I did the first time. What did you notice in that scene? Um... Just the, like, the kind of the body motions of that puppet. Um, I think the the emotiveness uh, that the whole, like, movement has. Um, the music and also the interaction with kind of everyday things like the dresser and the, the mirror and, um, like, sweeping everything off a table and everything. I feel like I didn't quite pick up on those things the first time I saw it. Because you're just like, what is this Yeah, I was trying to figure out what I was watching more than I was, like, kind of taking in everything that I was watching. Mm-hmm. Because one of the first things that the puppet Craig does is he looks at a mirror and he's kind of, I don't know if it's shocked or disgusted in what he sees, mm -hmm. but then he throws something at breaks the mirror. And that's kind of like that that dissolution of the self. You're trying yes. to destroy not yourself, but the self, the idea of yeah. what you are. And then he goes into this big tragic dance, destroying everything. And one of the things I love most is Puppet Craig then stops and looks up at real Craig. Yeah. And it's almost like this puppet is noticing that he has no agency and yeah, he is not, not a full self. Yeah. He's realizing that he is just the projection of this other, Craig. even sadder Craig. <laughs> and that throws him over the top. And then he does this, uh, he goes nuts with that, with yeah. that dance. Sweeping everything away and getting really upset. It's funny that Craig always wants to be someone else he talks about being in someone else's skin but most of the puppeteering he does is very similar to him he's not acting out these fantasies of extravagant romances or adventure everything he acts out is is so sad first of all it's just him being himself and then it's the eloise and abelard's tale which is again really sad and tragic it is i think that fits in really well with the idea of being John Malkovich in this because mm -hmm. Craig ends up doing the most mundane things and the things that he already hates. He doesn't escape. And then when you have people going into John Malkovich's mind, you'd think like, oh, famous celebrity, we're going to do all, we're going to be walking the red carpet, we're going to be in movies. He just becomes himself, but in John Malkovich. Yeah, so he, all the people that go in there, they get to see him order towels. 
Yeah. Things like that. So Just like random, really boring, normal, everyday people kind of things. Yeah, it's like the idea of this isn't exciting because he's a celebrity. They purposely pick the most boring things for him to be doing. And the exciting part for all of these people is just to be someone else. So it really suggests that all of them are just not happy intrinsically. And they're always just looking to be someone else. It doesn't matter if it's an adventure or buying towels as long as it's not what they already have. Yeah. Or riding in a cab or like any of the weird mundane things that he does. It's um, it's really amazing to see how excited everyone is when they come out. Yeah. I wonder if that's like a commentary on fame at all. That Maybe. we think it's going to be something great and then it's just terribly mundane and what all these people want is just an escape. It doesn't matter what it is. I think that's true. I think that um, everyone thinks that it's going to be this amazing time all the time. And you still have to, like, decide on towels and pick a dish at the restaurant and ride in a cab. And, like, stuff like that doesn't go away when you become super famous. You just, like, do some other interesting things as well. And even later in the movie where Craig takes over Malkovich's body and he's in it for, like, Eight years? Eight months? For a long time, either yeah. way. And he's turned Malkovich into the world's most famous puppeteer. So you'd think Craig has everything he wants, but he's still just an unhappy guy. He has Maxine, he has his puppetry career, but he's still the same like miserable, full of self-loathing person that he ever was. We always hear stories about how love can transcend your your body or your gender but this shows that your insecurity your loathing your self-hatred it does that as well that's pretty grim that is super grim it's saying like who you are makes you who you are not your fame or your body or anything like that if that's what you are that's what you are that's what you are oh but maybe we should hold off on that before i get too too philosophical Did you ever hear about those studies about lottery winners? No. So people who win multi-million dollar lottery winnings, they were checking in on them 10 years after. Mm -hmm. And people who were kind of grumpy (laughs) were less than happy before. Of course, they have a big upswing and they say everything's great for the next year. 10 years later, they're where they started. Yeah. Either they're back to being broke for some reason, or they're just unhappy and rich. People who are poor and happy, they will end up being rich and happy. But if you're poor and miserable, you're going to be rich and miserable too. True. And yeah, this doesn't change your basic human being, right? Like if your relationship is unhappy and you're like just a generally unhappy person, you're not going to be happy when you have like $10 million. You're just going to be a normal person with $10 million. And you're going to have the same life you did before. You're just going to have a little bit more money. So then what does change who you are? I don't know. So if you got to see the world through the eyes of a dog. Right. Let's just say you go around and you walk on all fours and you eat out of a dog bowl. Are you a dog? No. You're just doing dog things. You're just doing some dog things. So you can't like be the dog. 
No. What if you're in the mind of the dog, like in being John Malkovich, so you can see through the dog's eyes? Are you a dog then? No. No, because you're just kind of seeing you're what it is. You're just experiencing a dog? Right. What if you have full control of the dog? Your full brain in a dog's body. Are you the dog? No. What are you? You're experiencing the dog still. But are you not the dog at this point? Well, how long am I in the dog's brain? Forever. Well, then yes, you're a dog. What happened to you, the person? I don't know. But I think if you start to live your life in a dog's body, then you become the dog eventually. But do you know what it's like to be a dog? After a while. But you still have your consciousness. Yeah, but I think... So, like, does Craig ever know what it is to be John Malkovich? I don't know. Because he's still him. This is hard. (laughs) (laughs) He turns Malkovich into Craig. Right. He doesn't become Malkovich. No. No one ever truly becomes John Malkovich in being John Malkovich. Right. Because you can't become someone else. No. Because as soon as you do, you're not becoming them, you are them. And you don't exist. No one can become someone else. Am I getting too heady right now? A little bit. Let's, let's take a step just back. I need to dial it back a little bit. Okay. Um, do you know about uh, dualism and materialism? No. That's a good place to start. Let's start there. So um, the dualists are people like uh, Plato, Descartes. Descartes probably the most famous one. That's just the type of thinking that says there are two types of um, substance in the world. You have the physical matter and you have your mind. They're two different things. So that's why they're called dualists. Right. Your mind is separate from your physical being. Okay. A materialist would say, materialists were people like um, Hobbes and Marx was a materialist, that you are the matter. Right. Your brain is just synapses firing. That's what makes up your mind. Okay. This notion of the self is something that we've constructed, and it all comes down to the physical matter. There's no self or soul or whatever you want to call it. Okay. Where do you fall on that? Oh, I don't know. Everyone take a big bong rip right now. Ooh, I feel like I haven't had enough wine for this conversation. <laughs> um, I don't, honestly, I don't know where I fall on that. I think that's something that I haven't really thought about and I need about a million years to contemplate. Well, that's, yeah, that's what philosophers do. All they do is sit and think about it. Exactly. It's funny because we've uh, been watching, or we just finished watching The Good Place. Oh, The Good Place. And there's a character in that who is a moral philosopher. Chidi Adegonye. And he would always make these references and I'd be like, yeah, and I'd uh, shout out people's names because uh, I'm a nerd like that. Mm-hmm. And whenever he'd say something about Hume, I'd go, Hume! I used to be a big Hume fan, like all 19-year-old men were at some I'd point. I'd say I'm more of an Eleanor and you're more of a Chidi. Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> Are you an Arizona dirtbag? I don't know if I'd go that far. I think I, <laughs> I think I'm more. What's the fancy one? The, the, uh, Descartes. Tahani. I think I'm a mixture of Tahani and Eleanor. You're more of a Tahani. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. I think I'm a mixture of Eleanor and Chidi. Then I think that's why we get along is because <laughs> we're both a little bit Eleanor. <laughs> Thank you, Kristen Bell, for creating that character for us. Thank the writers. Writers don't get enough credit. Thank you. Like poor Charlie Kaufman, who doesn't get work anymore. Writers of The Good Place. Michael Schur? I believe so, yes. Okay, back to Philosophy 101. So if you were to say that you're a dualist. Okay. So you have your body and you have your mind, and they're separate. Right. And you could probably make the argument then that, like, can we ever experience 
our mind without our body? No. So that would be like kind of how you could refute the ideal of dualism. Right. Like, well, it's not two separate things. Of course, this movie is a dualist movie uh-huh. because the minds are traveling into different away from their bodies, bodies yeah. all the time. But where does the body go? That's... Man. Yeah, man. Whoa, man. <laughs> Whoa, man. <laughs> Get that bong out. But then if someone were to say that they're a strict materialist, that almost, if you're in the strictest sense of materialist, that kind of takes away from the idea of free will. Like you don't have a mind making these choices for you. You're just a series of synapses firing. So are you choosing those things, really? Or is that just the physical world doing what it does? I'm nodding, but I feel like I'm not understanding fully. Am I too dumb for this movie? (laughs) No, no, no. I think this movie is weird and it just puts things out there. Sure. It's not even taking stances necessarily in all this stuff. It's just, it's putting it out there. I do think this movie, if you keep watching it, is like pretty smart. But then again, I was... One of those teenagers that thought I was super smart because I watched uh, Being John Malkovich. I liked Bring It On. Bring It On's pretty good, too. (laughs) Bring It On is very good. Bring It On came out the next year. That was my big movie from like the early 2000s. So I guess for this movie, though, we can say that Craig can never truly be John Malkovich because his mind makes him a different person, not, not that body that he's in. Right. If you are then just your history right yeah yourself we're looking at it in a dualist way yeah that yourself is something that you can identify with you are samantha i am that if is correct. your brain was in a dog you still have your consciousness you are still samantha yes because you can you still have all of your memories but i wouldn't have to go to work anymore true although if you did it would be the cutest thing ever and everyone would come to your office i would have a little tutu (laughs) okay i don't know why you went to tutu i don't think that's work appropriate i think you'd have to wear like a nice pantsuit (laughs) no i don't wear a pantsuit now (laughs) would it be funny if you're a a dog day i wear like black jeans and a sweater (laughs) (laughs) that's not funny on a dog no Pansy, it's funny. A tutu and a bow would be super cute on a dog. True, true. Okay, but either way, you're still Samantha the dog. Yes, I am. Because Samantha the puppy. So you are your history. Yes. That's what makes yourself yourself. Correct. If you were to uh, split into two at one point ten years ago, and you lived two separate lives, that other you, although you have the same first part of your life, you have a very different sense of self then you're not the same person right this is the same way like twins aren't the same person no they kind of they literally started off as the same thing but they split off they're not the same person they don't have the same self so then what's that say for like are you the same person you were 10 years ago no no again i think we'd all say like oh we've grown and done all these things and it's always weird when politicians and or whoever is held to something of like well, you did this, so therefore you believe this. And if you change your mind, it's looked at as like flip-flopping or something. It's but very true. You just learn and grow. I've been given that advice in politics yeah. where I was like, okay, well, on Facebook, because I, you and I both grow up in a time where Facebook started right when we started like going out and drinking and like being out in the world and not really understanding what photos meant. 
um, that they were kind of forever and they were going to be on the internet forever. And so I remember going to a political thing and asking someone who was older and being like, so there's like photos of me out there like drinking and like having a good time and like being kind of drunk. And she's like, are there nude photos of you out there that you took and distributed to the internet? And I was like, no. And she's like, well, then you were 20. Like, I don't think anybody can hold you to that. So I think that that's a good kind of explainer for how different you can change and be. Yeah, definitely. The age you are now. So if you're a different person than you were 10 years ago, what does that mean for like our prison system? I think that means that you kind of have to say that people can be reformed. Yeah, and we, this isn't about the prison system, but we definitely have a system that's about punishment and not rehabilitation. Yes. What does that mean for, for marriage? If you take someone to be your lifelong partner, but see, you get married when you're 25, you're going to live to your 80, you're going to be more different than you were the same, perhaps. There's a very good chance that you will grow apart. Yeah. And I think that's where, like, divorce in, like, an amicable way or non-amicable way even kind of comes in. And you're just not, like, the right people for each other anymore. Interesting. Whoa, man. Whoa. Yeah, this whole, like, mind and body problem is philosophy 101 stuff. And then I'm sure everyone who's been through that class is like, yes, we got it. Get on with things. But it's a really interesting thing that's introduced by this movie. I appreciate it. Um, I appreciate this little walk through philosophy because I feel like I understand it, but I didn't really understand it in the way that you're framing it. So it's good. I understand the things that you're talking about, and I feel like we can continue talking about the movie now because I get it. All right. Oh, we don't want to talk about solipsism? No. Come on. No. Fine. Keep it moving. But it's about the movie. (laughs) Okay. So do you remember in The Good Place when we were talking about solipsism? I'll just give a refresher for everyone. That's the idea that you can only be certain in your own existence. Right. I know that I exist. That's the the Descartes famous, um, I think, therefore I am. Right. I'm aware of my own existence. I can think about my own existence, so I'm sure of it. Okay. I can't tell if you exist. I have no way of proving that. Right. Because, like, think about it. You can't prove that I exist. No. No, you're right. I can't. So maybe I'm just a figment of your imagination. You're having a, a fever dream before you die. And this oh. is all this is all just uh, <laughs> the last things you think of. Well, that's embarrassing because we have a podcast together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How elaborate is this dream, right? Or the old brain in a jar thing where like, maybe you're just a brain in a jar experiencing different chemicals and this is what it puts together for you. But you can be aware that you exist. In this movie, people get to go into the minds of others. So they are the only people that ever could kind of um, overcome this idea. Right. Like, Craig goes into Malkovich's mind. He knows that Malkovich exists. Yes. That's amazing to be certain of someone else's existence. And you would think that this would bestow all of these characters with a lot of empathy because to be in someone else's brain you've kind of experienced their life and you should be so empathetic but that's the opposite of what we get we get them just using him for whatever they can and they don't gain any sort of understanding from this they don't have any big moral or philosophical breakthroughs they just try to monetize it or they just try to gain control interesting 
<laughs> I love when you just explain things to me. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things. <laughs> I was hoping it was more of a discussion, but... Well, okay, I'll, I'll get off of that sort of stuff. Let's talk about um, the motivations of the characters. Okay. What do they all want? Um, it seems like so- they want something better than they have right now. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, it's not all the same thing. Like, they don't all want the same thing. Like, Craig wants to be a puppeteer, and he wants to be that famous puppeteer that he sees on TV. Yeah. I love that this exists in a world where there are famous puppeteers. Yeah. And when Craig watches him on TV and he's just like, um, you cheap bastard or whatever yeah. he says. Yeah. He's like, gimmicky he bastard. loves you gimmicky bastard. He loves it, but he's also like, oh, that's gimmicky. I'm not a sellout like that. But he also really looks up to that guy. He does. Um, and I think Lottie wants to live in a world where her husband is as into her like pets and like animals that she owns as she is. And uh is kind of as weird and quirky as she is. And I think that um, Craig kind of wants a woman more like Maxine, who's, like, beautiful and rich and, like, really into his puppetry. What's Maxine want? I don't know what Maxine wants. I feel like everyone in this movie just wants control, right? Like, um... Maxine, she gains her power by controlling and influencing others. That's her thing. Right. She even says at one point, well, you control Malkovich and I control you. So so she just wants to control other people. And that's how she uh, kind of gains power over her life. Craig is trying to control something. And all he's since he's so powerless at the beginning, all he can yeah. control are his puppets. And that's why when he gets the opportunity to control Malkovich, he's thrilled and doesn't want to leave it because Mm -hmm. he's finally... Kind of living his dream. Yeah, and had his life's work kind of justified. Yeah. Like, I've been doing this all and it's been for something. Yeah. And really, he's been, like, wasting his life, honestly. I guess you can say, like, he's creating art, but he's miserable creating this art. It's not bringing him any happiness. It's not bringing anyone else any happiness. And the only thing he gets is the ability to control Malkovich. So now he feels like, now I'm controlling someone. And he also just wants to control that way. And I think Lottie then gains power over herself, and she gains some sort of self-determination by coming to the realization that either she's perhaps transgender, but at least she realizes she's attracted to women at this point, and gains that uh, bit of control over herself. Right. I don't know what Malkovich is trying to control. It's so funny that it's John Malkovich in this. And it's it's really hard why? to explain why. Because he's just that perfect niche of, like, if this was um, being Polly Shore, then it's a joke and it's silly. Like, oh, yeah, Polly Shore is a really terrible, so that's funny that you're in this, like, shitty actor. Or if it's uh, being Brad Pitt, then it's too big. Like, he's bigger than the movie. Right. But being John Malkovich is like the perfect spot where it's right in between those two. And it's someone who's a serious actor and has sort of um, like almost like an authoritative presence. He's not some like schlubby character actor. He's a uh, I don't want to say regal. I think that's overstating it. But he has like a proud bearing to him. Right. If it was someone who was like lower down, it just wouldn't have the same humor almost. Yeah. Like um like in the good place again. I keep trying to explain like why it's so funny that he loves Blake Bortles. Right. And unless you're like 
a big football fan, fan, you wouldn't really get it, but it's you said to trust me that it's hilarious that it's Blake Bortles okay, and then Jason. <laughs> and then Nick Foles and then there's one Gardner Minshew joke and Gardner Minshew jokes are it's very funny but it's hard to explain without so much like backstory <laughs> of why it's so funny that it's those people. I will have to take your word for it. <laughs> um, you explained big Blake Bortles to me yeah. twice, I think. Um, but I. Uh, yeah, I think you kind of have to understand who the person is in order yeah. to really get All I can say reference. is, like, with um, Jason in that show, it's the most appropriate for that character to love that person. And I think that's that goes with, with this, too. It couldn't have been anyone else. I couldn't think of a better choice than, uh, than being John Malkovich. <laughs> so in my notes, I think I... I kind of highlighted on the fact that there's, like, some really interesting things that I noticed during the movie. And a lot of my notes came from the second watching. Um, like, why Maxine always wears white. I don't... I didn't understand why. And I thought maybe you could give me some more information on why you think that is. I don't know. Because I do recall, like, at least the first two times she's wearing, like, a, a tight white top we mm. see her in. But I, I, I don't know. I wonder if it's just to set her apart from... Uh, from Craig's really dingy dark world. And that's what I was thinking too, or the fact that she's like almost like a godlike figure, like she's con- kind of to controlling sure. everybody around her. And yeah. so she is kind of the like pure white thing in the like dingy mass. Yeah. She did get a Oscar nomination for Best she? Supporting Actress for this. She did a really good job in this video. She was very good. In this video. <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> um the other thing was um, there was always something going on in the eighth floor that I really like that every time the elevator opened, there was always somebody walking by or somebody vacuuming or somebody doing something like waiting for the elevator. Um, there was always something happening on the eighth floor. It was never just an empty floor, which is like I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, it's kind of like the theme that goes throughout the movie that people that are below something having little brief glimpses into something better, but yeah. never fully attaining it. Exactly. We get that with the eighth floor. That's such a fun bit. I feel like because I was writing my first films around the time seeing this, like as a as a teenager, mm-hmm. I was super hacky and would just see like, oh yeah, seven and a half floor, that's so quirky. And I hated, now I hate things. I just try to be quirky for no reason. But I feel like there's so much more to Kaufman's like quirkiness, if you can call it that. Because it goes beyond that. And it's like real, true absurdism, really. Yeah. Um, I also really liked... Um what was his name? Dr. Lester. Oh, yes. Uh, I found him very uh, kind of funny because he was very humble when you first meet him because he's like, I'm sorry, you can't understand anything (laughs) I'm saying. Like, my speech impediment, it's like awful. I know. I'm really sorry. You're too kind for saying that you can understand me. And I thought that was really funny because it's like – it seems almost like a world where the women control everything. Mm-hmm. Like that secretary is the boss of Dr. Yeah, Lester. she definitely like controls she things. She is just totally in charge of him and has him convinced to the fact that he has like a speech impediment. Yeah. And like how long have these two people been working together for that to happen? Because I feel like if either of us walked into a job tomorrow, nobody could actually like convince us that we have a speech impediment yeah. like i feel like that is a very long seated like long game kind of convincing mm-hmm. that you'd need in order to like actually believe that 
Um, and so, and then like Maxine is controlling um, Craig and Malkovich and Malkovich and um, and Lottie at the beginning kind of controls Malkovich, but is also kind of grasping for control and kind of falls under um, Maxine's spell. Yeah, she goes from having very little control to ultimately, though, she does have control over Maxine, but she's just not a manipulator like everyone else is. Yes. Because she just allows Maxine to come to her and is happy with that. She doesn't need to control things in such a intense way like the others do. Exactly, yeah. I should say, um, I'm just on IMDb like I usually am when we're recording. Um, Orson Bean died in February of this year. Who's uh, Dr. Lester? Aww. Yeah, that's sad. He was such a good character. I really liked him. I loved his bit about uh, which of these letters comes first. And Craig goes, well, the second one is not a letter in the English alphabet. Can't goes, fool you. Damn, you're good. Or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the bit where uh, he says, well, Mr. Juarez, he goes, actually, it's Schwartz. And then he just goes, security. <laughs> Like, there's so many people vying for this job. Yeah. And this guy just, like, snuck in. <laughs> if I was 80 years younger. Like, how old are you? He says he's, like, 102 or something. 105? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And then you figure out what he actually means, and he is technically 105. Oh, I assumed that this body was, in fact, 105. But he had also been, like, jumping before that. And he'd been waiting for... For Malkovich for, for Malkovich 44 years. to become, like, the right age. Yeah, because he had to become 44 to permanently jump into someone. Yeah. But I think when you jump into someone, I don't think you control them. I think you're just along for the ride. Are you? I thought so. Hmm. Because no one else who goes in can control him except for Craig because he's the, he's the puppeteer. I just thought because there were so many people jumping in that it would be... Maybe, I wonder. That it would be like they could all control him because there were so many like people inside of him. Oh, you think it's like a strength in numbers thing? I think so. So then who is Malkovich then? Is he these 16 people? Yeah. How do you, how does that consciousness work? You're just a collective consciousness? I think you choose who huh. gets to be Malkovich. You like take turns? Yeah. Wow. Is it like a like a bathroom schedule where you're like, okay, you're going to shower at this time. You're in charge of bathroom. You're, you're Malkovich on Tuesdays. You're Malkovich cooking. You're like. Wow. Yeah. It's intense. It's like a dorm schedule. <laughs> <laughs> I think another thing I liked about this movie when I was uh, a teenager and into my young 20s is that it's a movie about art. And I think a lot of Kaufman's movies are like this. There's often an artist in it and i know it's like kind of self-serving and pretentious to make movies about the process of making art but i still kind of love it <laughs> like he made adaptation where he writes himself into the movie writing the movie that he's currently in right so it's not that far but this is definitely about i think the artistic process and you mm -hmm. kind of have um metaphors for maybe even the writing and film process in it. Right. So like in that way, uh, Craig would kind of be the the writer. He's the surrogate for Charlie Kaufman himself. He gives life to inanimate objects. He wants some sort of credit and recognition for all this work he's doing, but he ultimately doesn't get any of it. Does that track? 
It tracks. So then uh, Malkovich, appropriately, would be the actor because he's controlled by others. He's the the face of this whole operation. Right. But he doesn't ever really get to tell his own story. No. Yeah, it, that, that makes sense. And then I guess Maxine is like the producer. She doesn't even participate in things because she never actually goes into Malkovich. No. She doesn't she create just... anything, but she just wants to figure out how to monetize this. Right. She's like, I'm going to stay out here and I'm going to handle the money. I don't want to deal with all the... And she like talks down to all of the uh, people like Craig. Right. And I Who want to like... go inside and be Malkovich. Yeah. And Craig specifically the most because he's like this feeble, really pathetic character. Yeah. And I feel like that's uh, Kaufman's own insecurities of being a screenwriter and how you get treated in the system hmm. coming through in that. And then I guess Lottie is just the the viewer. She's the audience. Right. She's the one that goes through this process and is truly actually changed by it. She's not an active participant, mm-hmm. but she just takes it in and it changes her. So she's kind of like the, the ideal audience in that way. Yeah. I like those metaphors. Those work well for me (laughs) he's always uh, he charlie kaufman is always writing characters who try to use art to create like a new world uh, something better Uh, synecdoche new york is about this as well but ultimately all they do is create a like a shittier version of the unsatisfactory life that they already lead right and that's very much the case for craig when he has full control over malkovich his life doesn't get better he just has malkovich's money and a woman that he thinks he's in love with or who he thinks that is in love with him. Yeah. I guess he's probably in love with Maxine. Maxine is really only in love with the idea that she's famous because of John Malkovich. Yeah. She likes the attention. Yes. Even when it's Lottie in Malkovich, she is so turned on by this because it's two people. Two people at one. That are desiring her through one body, essentially. And yes. that's what she loves about it. Um. I definitely think that Craig liked the idea of being Malkovich more than he actually wanted to be Malkovich. He just really wanted to be successful. Yeah, he just wanted to be someone else and exert some sort of control over another person because he has none of that in his life. He has no control in his life. Yeah, absolutely. I also love later, late in the movie, we have one of my favorite scenes where it's that same... Oh, what was it? The dance of despair and disillusion. Yeah, where he does it with Malkovich's body. Yeah, that is amazing in a few different ways. Because this is a turning point for Maxine where she was always putting down his stupid puppetry and she seems legitimately impressed at this point, right? And also, Craig can't do that dance in his own body. No. He could only, and Malkovich couldn't do that dance in his own body. No. It's Craig's control and puppetry over Malkovich. It's like this whole control that he has has created something that has become like a kind of physical, metaphysical, artistic communion that made it greater than anyone's own ability. Right. It's like this dance is literally the power of art. And I know that sounds super pretentious, but that's kind of what it is, right? Because they're both going beyond their own physical abilities. Mm -hmm. He's uh, broken down that wall between the metaphoric and the literal. And Malkovich can dance because of art. Oh. Yeah. Whoa, man. Whoa, man. Well, maybe I'll I'll 
follow that with one last really pretentious thing, and then I'll be done for a little bit. Just one last pretentious thing? Maybe. Okay. So there's... Oh, man. How to I pick never, just one. <laughs> I know. I never thought I'd say the, the phrase like, well, this reminds me of a quote by Nietzsche, but oh. kind of does. Okay. So you he, said one last pretentious yeah, thing. Yeah, this is the one. And I'm going to like peak, peak okay. pretense. Oh, the... Uh, 19 year old philosophy student to me right now would be like yeah no that's cool man <laughs> girls love that they don't nobody does it's annoying philosophers are annoying oh cheating yes <laughs> um but nietzsche said in uh in the twilight of idols he said the distinguishing marks which one has given the true being of things are the distinguishing marks of a non-being of nothing doesn't that sum things up that went right over my head <laughs> Um, what makes you, you also makes you nothing and nothing, nothing. I feel like you have a nihilism. No. Okay. Let's, let's, let's do a little. Backtrack to nihilism. (laughs) Nietzsche could be considered a nihilist. He's not like a true, true nihilist because a true nihilist would believe in literally nothing there that all, everything we believe in is constructs. Maybe like a true nihilist could believe in destruction and that's about it okay but no one's well i guess not no one like some of those black metal guys probably are but people aren't real nihilists people are nihilists like the way i am where it's like oh nothing matters so let's be nice to each other that's kind of my <laughs> my brand of a nice uh, nihilist yeah but um but there's a lot of that in this movie and it's nihilism is about how there's no objective order or structure to anything Things don't have meaning. Things just are. Okay. And I'm on that side of things maybe a little bit more. And I think that that this movie kind of goes into that too because they all have this feeling of not belonging where they are. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could say Maxine doesn't, but we don't get as much insight into her. She definitely seems really confident in herself, but whether that's a facade or not. Yeah, we get almost no backstory on her. Yeah. She's a real strong character, but also like... There's very little development. Yeah, from perplexing, her. maybe. Yeah. But um a lot of these characters feel like they don't belong and that if they just had this one thing, then everything would make sense and the world would come together and they're they'd be happy. But this movie says like you can get that thing and you won't get it because no one belongs anywhere. You just are. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa, man. That's crazy. Thanks for explaining that to me. <laughs> no problem. I'm sure all the real philosophers out there will be like, well, actually, I don't want to hear it. No, actually, no, maybe I do want to hear it. Email us that yeah. I love this. You should too. At Email it, and then Sam will read them. And if they're nice, then I'll read them too. Okay, sounds good. My fragile ego can't take it. It's okay. I'll read them. <laughs> <laughs> but make sure you include something nice for me. Like a picture of a cat. No, that'd be for me. For a picture of a puppy. A puppy. Wearing a tutu and a bow and working at a desk. Yes. That is what I require in order for you to send indie emails. A little Sam dog. A little Sam dog. But you would still be Sam. Or would you be a new third thing, Sam dog? Or would I be nothing? Well, all of us are nothing, Samantha. That's what I've learned today. All of us are nothing. (sighs) You know what? We talked about the movie very little. Yeah. Do you have any like movie things you want to bring up? Like, hey, this didn't make sense. That was fun. Get me back on track. Not really. Honestly, this movie was so much more than just, like, the movie that we watched. It was kind of like when we talked about Blade Runner, 
we talked about the movie itself for like half of the time and more the questions that the movie raises. And I feel like that's exactly how this movie goes. That's very true. It's much less about Lottie and her struggles and the fact that she has like an ape living in her apartment <laughs> and more about the fact that she... Elijah. Yeah, Elijah. Elijah. And she, the more about the fact that she thinks that like she is a man and she has this and she has that and all of these like ideas yeah and she starts believing that she should truly be a man once she enters the body of a man yes and that's something like well how do any of us know that this is what we truly want yeah i've never been a woman it's probably better Maybe it's much worse. I don't know. I've never been one. I'm here to say it's not that much better. But you've never been a man. You exactly. don't know. Exactly. <laughs> you can never truly know what it's it is like to a... be someone else. Because as soon as you are someone else, you are them and you aren't you. So you couldn't know that exactly. thing. Exactly. It's like a grass is greener thing. It is a grass is greener thing. Thank you for explaining <laughs> the ramblings of me in a way people can understand. The grass is always greener on the other side. And it's never as good as you think it's going to be. Yeah, man. There you go. And the self is just an illusion. Philosophy explained by Samantha. I'd listen to that podcast. (laughs) Are there any other little things that you want to talk about? Honestly, no. I think we've kind of discussed the big things about this movie that that like really stuck with me. I do have written down that the Inuit do not have 49 words for snow. That's just like a thing that people made up. It's just like a kitschy phrase. Yeah, they have a normal amount of words for snow. They have different uh, states of snow. Like, like we do. Yeah. Like, But it's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty normal. So just throwing that out there for all of you. Excellent. Good to know. Oh, I wrote some stuff about Freud. Let's just skip over that. Yeah, let's just keep Ooh. going. Keep moving. Um, I guess I did like that in the end of the movie that Maxine has actually changed. She's not like just grabbing for power anymore. She's grabbing for happiness. And maybe mm. she just had never seen that before yeah just like how lottie had never experienced what it was like to be with a woman then she sees it and she realizes that's what she wants yeah maxine sees the happiness of being with lottie and realizes that all of the like the power grabs that she'd been doing in the past don't compare to that yeah i like that they ended up together in the end and they seem like they're like they're happy yeah that whole scene at the pool was like it was adorable and i really liked that you kind of got to see them in the end together. And then what do you think about the ending for Craig? I don't know. He's just trapped inside a baby. Yeah. And he's being tortured because he's seeing the woman he loves with his ex-wife. Mm-hmm. And he just has to watch it for the Forever. rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah. It's so crazy. Do you think he'll ever get control of, of this baby? Maybe someday. Yeah. But it's still, like, I feel like kids are, like, so non, like, autonomous at that point where you don't really have control over your, like, thoughts and feelings and your abilities and what you're doing with your life that I think he's going to be at their mercy for longer than he would probably care to be. Yeah, because the world of this movie suggests at the age of 44 is when you're most malleable. Right. So he's got a long wait. He's got a long wait to go. Or does he just get lost and absorbed into the consciousness of this of this little girl? Maybe. Huh. Interesting. Interesting thought. A lot of interesting thoughts in this movie. Do you have any final interesting thoughts as we wrap up being John Malkovich? 
I really liked how unglamorous most of the people in this movie were. Yeah, it's nice to see like Cameron Diaz like that. Yeah, like she's a beautiful woman. And I think that it takes very little to make her look good. They went the complete opposite way and went very far in the other direction and made her look very, very plain and very, very kind of normal almost looking yeah it's not like they went so far as some movies do when they're like oh look how ugly she is it's just she was exactly how lottie should look yeah she's normal she's just a normal person who works in a pet store and i think that that would probably take more work than it takes to make cameron diaz look like super glam and gorgeous i wonder i or maybe they're like oh this will be easy to make someone look plain because people are just and they're like glammed up so much to look right yeah maybe and they just stop doing that i love when craig becomes malkovich for a long period of time that malkovich grows his hair long and looks yeah. all disheveled just like craig always and he does. starts dressing like craig yeah. like and he just like moves like him yeah. that was you know who should have got an oscar nomination malkovich. malkovich for playing malkovich and craig in malkovich yeah. because he's not really playing himself he's playing this kind of john horatio malkovich which is not his real name no And I think that that, yeah, he definitely should have gotten an Oscar for that because that is such an amazing character role because he's still playing himself, but he's also playing someone else. Yeah. And he's playing someone else playing himself. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, there was some really good work by Malkovich in this. And that's one thing I'd forgotten. But I think Michael Caine won this year for Cider House Rules, which was very good. And Haley Joel Osment from Sixth Sense from episode number one. He was nominated as well for Best Supporting. Jude Law for Talented Mr. Ripley. It was a good year. It was just a, a good year of filmmaking. American Solid cinema. Solid year of American cinema? Yeah. Wow. Okay, well, 1999. So indie. Do you have any final thoughts about this movie? Yeah, I guess. Um, well, if you've listened to it this long without seeing the movie, then this was probably real weird for you. Very confusing. But uh, this movie about a portal to John Malkovich's brain, it's more of a a film about the impossibility of escaping ourselves. And you'd think that, like in a lot of other movies or art in general, art is seen like a way to escape. Right. That's your, whether you're a writer or an actor, you're escaping into the role, you're escaping into the world of a novel. Mm -hmm. But this is saying that that's ultimately impossible and futile. And even if you were somehow able to escape your own self and be someone else it's not any better and that what he says to a chimp right at the beginning of the movie is true that consciousness is a curse Mm. bye everybody bye (laughs) on that happy note Uh, i promise next week will be a little bit more uplifting i don't know because we're probably going to record again while we're still on lockdown in here we're only on day three and i'm starting to doubt that my self exists so my movie that i'm bringing to you guys next week is a lot less philosophical there's a little bit more psychology in my movie more than this oh man like different psychology um and i think that uh we're gonna have a really fun time watching it all right i'm excited yeah well until next time everyone we'll be back in a week and until then malkovich 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 (laughs) 